Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they do or see things differently. I am Sonia Lemann and today I meet Sana Gottby. This episode will be about participatory democracy. After working in politics for four and a half years, Sana is now co-owner at Digidem Lab, working with municipalities and public institutions to design participatory democracy processes. Together, we will discuss about the need to reinvent democracy, review examples, and share about opportunities, challenges, and specific initiatives here in Sweden. Hi, Sana. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be able to talk to you. In the intro of this podcast, I say, in a world in need of urgent reinvention. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. I think that's one of the reasons why I do what I do, because I see that we really need to change the way that we do democracy, the way that democracy works, because evidently it's not working. According to almost any country in the world, a lot of people feel like they don't have trust in government. A lot of people feel like that they don't have power and they don't have a say. And in most parts of the world, we see the same problem, which is that underrepresented groups, groups that are minorities that have been historically discriminated against, still don't have as much power as the majority. So I think we need to test new ways. So for that, we really need to reinvent the work we're doing now. Before we move on, can you tell us a little about yourself, about uh, what you do now, what you did before, but also how you got there and what drives your choices? Yeah, sure. So I became one of the youngest people, I think, entering into the Gothenburg City Council when I was 21. And that was basically because I thought that the way our city works today in Gothenburg isn't equal. And a lot of people have, I mean, they have less power, they have more difficult time in the job markets and the living situations and etc. So I really wanted to change that. And I was in the city council for four years. During that time, I saw with my own eyes the ways that local politics basically works and how problematic it is in many ways. I mean, I respect a lot of people that choose to enter into politics. It's not easy, but the system isn't created in a way that makes it easy or accessible for politicians or for decision makers to actually ask citizens what they need and to base their policies on the actual needs of the people. After those four years in politics, I actually felt like, okay, I want to do something different. I want to work directly with citizens. I want to work, work directly with how we do decision making and not just particular issues, but in the wider way of, of how the structures are made. And so that was why I, together with a couple of other people, started Didigam Lab, which is a democracy lab. And we're based in Sweden. We have our main office in Gothenburg, but we work all over Sweden and also other countries. We started doing a lot of participation and started working with municipalities. Basically, that was where I started from. Can you define for us what is participatory democracy? So participatory democracy basically means that it's different from representative democracy, which is that you elect politicians and then usually they run for four years and then you re-elect politicians again. So Participatory democracy is that citizens themselves participate directly into decision making and not just politicians. So regular people do everyday decision making. And it could be anything from deciding how your trash collection should be like, 
how they should build in the city you live in or how they should like combat climate change in the upcoming 50 years. So it can be basically an issue. The difference is that it's citizens participating and not just representatives. And why do you think it's developing so much right now? I think it's due to a, a couple of different things. For one, I think it's a common trend in a lot of countries that political parties are losing members. So, for example, in Sweden, we have the lowest participant rates ever in political parties. So there's only a couple of percent of the population that are active in political parties, which is not enough. So over 90% of the population, they're not participating in political parties. And it's due to the fact that the way we consume information, the, the way we organize ourselves are changing and we have to keep up with that change. And the way that political parties are structured are very conservative. And a lot of people organize in a more informal way in networks that comes and goes. You don't commit yourself to the same thing for like 10 years. You do different things depending on the needs you see. You participate online, you go to a demonstration, you, you want to be flexible with your participation. And that's not the way political parties work, uh, unfortunately. And that's why we need to be flexible with how we do participation, I think. And in a lot of countries, there's been a lot of protests as well. For example, in Spain, there was this economic crisis. I mean, it wasn't the whole European Union, but especially Spain, it was very evident that a lot of people in their everyday lives saw change. They lost their jobs. They had a hard time paying their rent. And just as an example, a lot of people from that decided that we need to change politics. We They went dem to demonstrate. And from that, a lot of new types of politics were formed. And I think that we see that in a lot of countries that have gone from a more conservative way of doing politics to a more participatory approach. A lot of them, it stemmed from crisis. The same with in France with the yellow vest that starts something, a spark, and then you realize that you need something else. And what are the most inspiring examples that paved the way? The 15M movement is actually one of those examples for me. It's called 15M in, in Spanish, and it's called that because it, it happened on the 15th of May 2011, where millions of people in Spain at the same time went out to the biggest squares, for example, Plaza de Sol in Madrid and a lot of squares in Barcelona, Zaragoza. What happened is that they basically sat down and they didn't leave for a week and they started having these conversations together. So neighbors, but also people that never met. They organized these committees where they start talking about issues about the job market, about the rent, about privatizations, where water was being privatized. A lot of people had a difficult time. And from that, this movement grew. And for years and years, people organized and were saying that, okay, politics is corrupt. We don't have transparency. What happens to the money? What happens to our welfare system? And then in 2015, after this economic crisis, they had local elections. And in all of these big cities, a lot of progressive political parties were formed, just like formed by regular citizens. And they entered into politics and they started doing participatory democracy or direct democracy. And they, for example, started huge processes. In Barcelona, they did something called PAM. Programa Actuación Municipal, where the whole political program for the city, the upcoming four years, was decided by citizens. And they they said, okay, now it's up to the citizens to decide on every subject. Like, what should we do with the climate change? What should we do with uh, our energy plan? What should we do with our traffic plans? 
how should we work with social issues? And it was all decided together with citizens. And that's something we've never seen before in a big European city. So I think that's very inspirational. And I think it's inspired a lot of people actually to doing what they're doing today with participation. I have in my island as well. Do you know this case in Ireland? Yeah, exactly. That's also really inspiring because it was around very controversial issues. In 2016, they formed the first Irish Citizen Assembly. They said that, okay, we have a couple of issues that we as politicians are afraid of talking about. For example, abortion. And abortion is an issue that they've never been able to really talk about in Ireland because it's so sensitive due to religious reasons. And so for the first time, they said, okay, we're going to select 99 people completely at random from all walks of life, from different ages, from different geographical points in Ireland, different professions, social class, and they're going to sit down and they're going to learn about abortion from a medical perspective, a legal perspective and social perspective, and then they're going to decide what we should do. And what's interesting is that most of the people in this citizen assembly of these 99 people were actually against abortion when they asked them before. But after listening to experts, they changed their minds In 2018, they delivered their recommendations and they said, we think it should be legalized and we think we should do a popular vote in Ireland. And they did a popular vote. And for the first time, the majority of the population said, we want to legalize abortion. Why they did that is because it was regular people that said, hey, guys, we should really do this. And since they're not politicians, they resemble regular people. The people really trusted these citizen experts and they decided, "Okay, let's legalize abortion. And it's the same with a lot of other issues, like the climate issue that they also did an assembly around. A lot of the policies that the citizens created shocked the nation because a lot of people said, oh, we shouldn't let citizens decide because they're skeptical. They don't know anything about the climate. And then they realized, hey, if we actually let citizens listen to experts, meet each other, deliberate, they can actually come up with pretty innovative proposals. And it's the same in France, right? Uh, Even Macron said that, oh, we're going to approve of all of these recommendations because he didn't think they would be that radical. And then I think he was pretty shocked (laughs) at the rate of how actually radical those, I mean, I don't think they're radical, but how big they were, the recommendations that the citizen created. Speaking about the Citizen Convention for Climate in France, what do you think of it in the end? I mean, I think it's a shame that the government didn't really approve most of the recommendations. A lot of the recommendations were changed. One that has been talked about a lot is the one about flights. The original proposal was that they wanted to forbid flights that could be taken by train in four hours. But Macron or the government changed it to two and a half hours. So I think that's something that they did with a lot of the proposals that they watered them down so that they became less effective. But what's really interesting is that this group of 150 citizens in France actually became like this activist group. I think that's very interesting. People that were actually not that interested in the climate before and said that they didn't really believe in climate change. And now they're this active group that's actively advocating more climate policies in France. That's really interesting. And I think that citizen assemblies... Of course, it's important that politicians listen to them, but I still think that they have an effect even if politicians don't straight away you know, accept their proposals. Because I think another important effect is just that 
the way that uh, people start believing more. Even the media is writing more about the climate when they have citizen assemblies about the climate. And I think that's important as well, not just the way politicians react, but also how the public react. Mm. So Sweden is a very democratic country. Stakeholders dialogue is a strength. Consensus is the norm. So I'm thinking, is there really a need to develop participatory democracy here in Sweden if it's rooted in the culture already? I think that's a myth that Sweden is such a democratic country because I'm not saying that we're a non-democratic country, like a dictatorship or anything, but What I mean is it depends on how you define democracy, because I think if we just define democracy by having an election every four years and, you know, the right to express yourself and the right to form a political party, then obviously, yes, we have democracy. But for me, democracy is also everyday participation. For example, there was this investigation that they did on a state level in Sweden that's called Democracy Investigation, Demokratiutredningen. And it's something that they did five years ago. They interviewed a lot of people, did a lot of research, and they found out that it's two to four percent of the population that are politically active. And of these people, it's very few that are young, very few that are born outside of Sweden and fewer that are women. So they're not representative for the population. And what they see is a trend where a lot of political representatives take on more assignments. So less and less people are in power and the same people have more power. And this is a very negative trend. And there's been since then more investigations on youth participation specifically. And every time it showed the same thing, that youth participation is decreasing more and more. And at the same time, we feel like, okay, we've never had a population this aware about the world and this interested in the world. So how come, how can we have this at the same time? We have to make it easier for people to participate without having to become active in a political party because a lot of people don't have the time, they don't have the resources to become politically active in a party. Because, I mean, I've been politically active in a party. It, it demands a lot of time, a lot of resources. What if I just want to be able to express myself about this highway that's being built outside of my house? What if I'm just interested in this particular issue? Why should I have to go into a political party then? Why don't we have a world that's based on actual needs of the people? Like when we build things, when we decide things, why don't we just ask people in a neighborhood what's important to them? But we don't really. I mean, in Sweden, I've maybe educated around 2000 civil servants the last two years. And what I've seen is that a lot of good willing people, a lot of people that want to do good things, but they don't have the tools. They don't know how to approach citizens. A lot of times they say, oh, we're going to build in this area. And when we're going to talk to citizens, it's too late. We've already decided what we're going to do. So we're just invite citizens. The citizens say what they think, but then we don't listen to them because we can't because it's too late. And so that's why we need participation in Sweden, because the trust is decreasing. At the beginning, you were mentioning that across countries, we see a growing mistrust in institutions. But I've read that Sweden was one of the countries where population actually trusts government and institutions most? I mean, this is the very interesting thing about Sweden, because 
if you look at where we started in the 60s, we started from a very high position. Sweden used to be one of the poorest countries in Europe. You probably know what happened in the, during the workers' movement. From that, we became one of the strongest welfare states in the world. And I think it created a strong identity where a lot of people felt like, oh, Sweden is one of the most equal countries. We are so good. We have this high trusted government because the government actually provides. They give us what we need. We have fair rents. We have fair wages. And it's really nice. And I think this identity really stuck because what's been happening since then, and I mean, this is something that research shows as well, is that year by year since the 80s, we've been slowly dismantling all of our welfare system. And so it's become worse and worse and worse and worse. But in a very slow rate, we've privatized the pharmacies. We've privatized the railroad. We had a lot of immigration and a lot of migrants that live in very precarious situations compared to people that don't. And we have a lot of these things that actually shows that, okay, Sweden isn't as equal of a country as we think, but we still hold on to this strong identity of being like the best in the world. What happens then is that at the same time as we're becoming worse and worse, people aren't really taking action because they have this high trust in government. So it's actually one of the most difficult countries to work in, I would say, as a person working with participation. I would much have it much easier if I was in Spain now, because a lot of people can agree that, oh, the government is so bad, we have to do something. But here, people don't really you know, have that common agreement. If I go to a, a low-income neighborhood where they've seen their schools being dismantled, their railroad being dismantled, where everyone has really low salaries and they're discriminated against in the job markets and everything, they would say, I hate the government or, you know, I don't trust the government. But at the same time, I go just across the city and talk to people in richer areas where people have really high trust, then it's not the same. So it's, I wouldn't say that we have consensus. I would say it depends on who you talk to in Sweden because it's so segregated. So people don't really realize that there are inequalities, you know, but in Sweden, at the same time, things are changing. That's where Fridays for Future was born. And you can see the younger generation getting more active and more revolutionary in a way. Mm. I think a lot of people in particularly the climate movement, for example, are very sick of hearing all the time that Sweden is the best because thing. I mean, it depends on how you measure that. If you measure the amount of things we dump in other countries. No, we're not that sustainable. But if you only measure what's done within the country, obviously, yeah, it seems like a sustainable country. It's the same with, you know, equality between genders. I mean, a lot of people say that Sweden is a really equal country, but we know that there are still a lot of issues that we have to deal with. Mm. So working with municipalities and public institutions, how does it work concretely? Give us some examples. Usually a municipality contact us either because they have a very specific plan, like, oh, we're going to build something in this area and we want to involve citizens. How should we do that? Please help us. Or they can be more broad that, okay, we, our politicians have said that we have to be better at participation. So we want to do something, but we don't really know what. So inspire us, tell us about examples in, in other parts of the world and so a couple of examples of what we've done in Sweden is that in in Gothenburg, where we've been working with a couple of housing companies to involve tenants 
in concrete budget, so like participatory budgeting. And it's inspired by Paris. To explain to the listeners, a participatory budget is basically when you set aside money, concrete money, and it's usually a couple of percents of a total budget. So it could be the city budget or a housing company's budget or a school's budget. And you say, okay, this amount of money is for the citizens. You decide what we do with this money. And the citizens create proposals. It could be, oh, I want this park or I want food delivered to homeless people. And then other people vote on your idea if they think it's a good idea. And then the ideas with the most votes in the community, they get the money and they're implemented. This is something that we started doing together with housing companies in Sweden. And it's the first time in the Nordic that that's happened. And it's becoming increasingly more popular and more and more neighborhoods in Gothenburg are doing it now. We also started working with the schools. And that was the first time that we combined working with school children and tenants. And that was also very interesting. And usually we do a lot of workshops then together with civil servants and the governments. And we look at, okay, who who lives in this neighborhood? What associations are there? Who should you collaborate with? How should you do your communications? So you reach out to the citizens. We design the process and a timeline and then decide on activities for each step and how to involve citizens along the way. And then we also do workshops with citizens directly. So yeah, that's usually the things we do. And then sometimes we do trainings with politicians as well. Mm. And how do you incentivize citizens to join in and dedicate their evenings and their weekends? That's a good question. Usually a lot of civil servants, they come and they say, wow, it's really hard to find citizens in quotation mark. <laughs> and what we usually say is, well, it kind of depends on what you want them to do. Because I find that a lot of government officials feel like they have to take off something like, oh, I need to say that I had 10 citizens in this meeting. But but instead, you should start by thinking about, okay, so why do I want citizens to participate? So what do they get out of this process? What is beneficial for them? And it always comes down to power, empowerment, and how much impact their participation has. Obviously, if you just invite young people and you say, hey, come to this meeting and then you don't have a purpose and they don't really get anything in return, then there's no point. But a lot of times we see that when citizens participate and they realize that, oh, actually, my proposals get implemented. If I give an idea and if, if enough people in the community agrees it's financed, then that's something more powerful and you win as a community. It's not you as a person that wins. We talk about collective intelligence. The more people that work together, the more intelligent we are as a society. We, I mean, we go to school when we were little and teachers decide for us what we should do in school. We then start working and we have bosses in our work that decide what we should do. And then we vote every four years and politicians decide what we should do in, in society. So people are not used to deciding. So I think that's the thing. You just have to do it until you get used to it. And then you realize the potential. Isn't it sometimes an alibi? A small part of the budget is dedicated to a participatory budget and the big decisions continues business as usual. You have a clear conscience because you know you've done something on the side. The same when you work with gender issues or racial issues, it can always be used as an alibi where you say that, hey, we have women here, so we're very equal, but it's not enough. Participatory budgeting has to be just one of the ways where you listen to citizens. And it has to be something that you do every day, continuously, in every single part of government. 
otherwise people are just going to lose m- more trust. I mean, I talked to people in Paris, for example, citizens that were a bit displeased because they had created these proposals and then the Paris government changed their proposals. What happens then is that citizens lose trust. So there's no point in doing the process if you're just going to take back what you promised. <laughs> When you organize a process like this, what do you need to be cautious about? One of the most important things is to be very clear about all of the steps in the process that you're doing and where in this process do the citizens have influence. Look at Brexit, for example. The only time citizens came into that process when they were voting. So they were not part of deciding the issue. They were not part of talking about the solutions. They were not part of forming the agenda. And we see the consequence of that because people were not informed when they voted. I see that in a lot of cases, citizens, they come in very late in a process. So that's very important to have civil society members be a part of a participation process very early so that they're actually part of formulating the problem. Because a lot of times it's politicians or decision makers that say, oh, I think this is a problem. We need to talk about this. And this is the only thing you can talk about. In reality, There are people in the community that have completely different problems. And so then you're missing a lot. So that's important. And then I think it's important that the people that work on the ground, that they don't feel overrun, like this is something that comes from above and they have to do this extra and they already have a lot of things to do in their everyday job. And now I have to talk to citizens as well. You have to introduce it in a way that if, for example, I'm a park engineer, it's not I design parks and then I talk to citizens extra. It's You design parks, and while you design parks, you also have to talk to citizens to do your job better. It's a mind shift. It's a long-term commitment to engage citizens. And also, other very important thing is when you want to do participatory democracy, you always have to think extra about people that aren't particularly marginalized or discriminated against because people who have this history of being pushed out of the conversation, you have to really create these safe places for them i mean to understand that you as a representative of government always have a power position and that you have to do anything you can to equalize that power i think so you mentioned participatory budgets do you have a list of typical processes that you work with i also talked about citizen assemblies within participatory budgeting and citizen assemblies, there are also different types. So for example, climate assemblies and within participatory budgeting, you have school. Uh, sometimes we do participatory urban planning. And we have a really strong uh, municipal law that says that you have to do a citizen dialogue when you do urban planning. That's something that we see a lot. And then we also do a lot of work right now around community organizing. It's more of a grassroots uh, method. Black Lives Matter, they do community organizing. So basically, it's that you work very closely with local communities to organize effectively either towards the government or any other decision-making body to show that this is the needs of our people. And you organize in different ways. So it could be anything from providing free breakfasts or training young people or providing educational programs. So it's we provide ourselves and then at the same time, putting forward demands to the government. Martin Luther King was a community organizer. So what they were doing was that they were, okay, Black people are denied education. They're denied 
civil rights. So we provide it ourselves to the people. We do our own educational programs and our own programs to empower our community because the government isn't providing this for, for us. That's an example. Right now in Gothenburg, we've been working with young people from low-income neighborhoods and they learn methods in how to listen to people's needs. And then they go out and they interview and they talk to people in the area and they take in their needs. And then it's meant to be like a long-term organizing strategy where you know the needs of the people, you create networks, and then you connect people to each other depending on their skills and then you build alliances and then you build long-term strategies for organizing. So that's also something that we do. And we do that where it's civil society organizations mostly and not with municipalities. And what's your dream for participatory democracy in the future? There is an initiative right now in France called the Popular Primary to select the best candidate to the presidential election. I don't know if you've heard of it. And apart from that, internationally, there are intellectuals thinking about a more permanent way of doing participatory democracy with a third chamber made of citizens. So what's your dream for the future? How do you see participatory democracy becoming the rule? If I could dream, I would want participation to be built on basically three pillars. One is to have, because let's face it, we're not going to remove representative democracy. So I think that pillar still needs to happen, but we need to make it more accessible because how it is today, not everyone can become a politician. It's not very accessible. And so we don't have representative politicians today. So allowing more people from different backgrounds to enter into politics. And my inspirational point for that is what's been happening in the U.S. with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the squad that they have. It actually came from a movement called Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats, where they started to train people to become politicians, people that they say, you know, you should be a politician because you you have everyday experience, even though you don't have money and resources, we can help you. And that's something I believe in, training everyday people to enter into politics. And then the second pillar is the government. I think the government should start doing permanent participation, like you say, permanent structures where you have, for example, a rotational citizen assembly that uh, changes every time. And then people do their service where they have to learn about a subject and then for proposals. And then a third pillar that's based on civil society and grassroots organization, you always have to have that as well. You cannot only have top-down governmental processes. You also have, a, have to have a strong civil society. And to have that, my dream would be for more people in Sweden to kind of wake up <laughs> and realize that we're not in this perfect country. We have to organize. We have to demand things. We have to meet each other, to cross-pollinate over different movements, people that live in the suburbs and organize every day to have access to equal healthcare and things like that. They should collaborate with old people that are don't get any pension at all in Sweden because we have one of the worst pension systems uh, in Europe. There are so many issues. I think all of those three Are needed at the same time. Better representation, better everyday participation, and better organizing on a grassroots level. And what would you say to people who don't feel legitimate? They don't feel that they're good enough to be in politics? I would say that you are an expert on your life and you are an expert on 
your community and your uh, reality. Because I think that, uh, unfortunately, how we define expertise today is very elitistic. So we think that to be, be an expert, you have to have an academic education. Uh, but citizens are experts also, because you can be an expert on how it is to live in Botkyrka. Uh, you can be an expert on how it is to live in Biskopsgården. That's expertise. It's local expertise. And I think the parallel with justice, where we have had juries for, I don't know, as long as we can think of, mm. the same. And we don't question the fact that juries decide on life or death or the sentence. Mm. Do you use this parallel a lot to explain participatory democracy? Yeah, I mean, uh, for example, citizen assemblies in Swedish, they want to call it medborgarråd or medborgarförsamling, which is other types of words. But I like the word jury. I call it medborgarjury in Swedish, which means citizen jury. I like the word just because that it's parallel to, like you say, the jury system. And that's something very unique that it gives a very clear idea of being elected, of getting this letter. It says, it's your duty. Now it's your turn to do your service. And I like that idea. Parallel that I really like. It's not someone that can be bought. It's someone that is independent. And to close this conversation, I have always this question about a book that was important to you or that you want to recommend. So actually, I didn't say that, but what really started off my interest in participatory democracy was that I did my bachelor thesis about Rojava, which is the Kurdish region in Syria, where they're running a participation project. Um, and I really recommend people to read about it. So a book that I really like is uh, called... The Revolution in Rojava. It's a very like, comprehensive book that you can read anything about how they're doing neighborhood assemblies, for example, even how they organize their police system in a democratic way and how they work specifically to strengthen women and empower women. So I really enjoyed that example a lot. I've never read about anything similar to that. Great. And do you have a quote that you like? I tend not to have idols <laughs> or like individuals that I think about I like collectives like I like movements a lot <laughs> <laughs> great well it was fantastic conversation uh, thanks a lot Sana thank you it was really nice to talk to you if you like this episode and if you want to support Sweden in Transition podcast the best thing is to give it five stars on Apple Podcasts and share it around you on social media And um, yeah, see, see you soon for our next episode.